This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. And then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Episode number 28. My goodness, how they do mount up. Yes, we're together again here on the show where I, your rabbi, does his best to reveal how the world really works. Very much appreciate you being there. And... Um, Thank you also for your emails. Uh, really appreciated. Had uh, had some wonderful ones during the past week. And uh, those of you who want to write, head over to my website, youneedarabbi.com, youneedarabbi.com, and click on the Contact Us tab, and I get to read um, whatever's on your mind. Sometimes uh, it's comments, sometimes it's appreciation, which I appreciate. Sometimes it's criticism, which I appreciate. Uh, yeah, I do. Now, abuse is something else, but uh, criticism, especially when it's constructive, very, very much appreciated. And um, talking about how the world really works. Well, uh, first of all, one of the ways the world really works is that in order to be trusted and trustworthy, you have to acknowledge your mistakes. And uh, as you know, I do that. I'm not going to say regularly because I don't make mistakes regularly. But when they crop up, I uh, always let you know. And so uh, one, of them, one of them was that I quoted last week, I believe it was, in uh, episode number 27, I uh, spoke about a, uh, a book, a 19th century book that uh, was published by a great explorer of the 19th century um, who studied all the cultures of the world. And uh, he ended up writing a book called The Golden Bow. And uh, The Golden Bow um, explored what people of different cultures believed and he sought out um, any examples he could find of, uh, of things that, that corresponded, that showed up any themes that reoccurred. And uh, I blithely told you that it was written by Richard Burton. Now, uh, some of you probably thought <laughs> Elizabeth 
Taylor's husband, like he had time to write a book about all the cultures of the world. No, not that Richard Burton. I was referring to uh, Richard Francis Burton, who um, uh, was born around about 19, uh, excuse me, about 1820 or thereabouts. And uh, he was one of those sort of wonderful, <laughs> eccentric uh, British explorers of, of the day. And, um, and no, he did not write The Golden Bough. The Golden Bough was written by somebody who was about 30 years younger, uh, born somewhere around about 1850, and his name was James Fraser. They both were knighted, by the way. I'm pretty sure he was Sir James Fraser and uh, Sir Richard Francis Burton. So I was incorrect. Uh, I was absolutely right. The book is The Golden Bough, and uh, and I'm not recommending it because it's it's a long, arduous book. It's it's more useful as a reference work. I mean, we're talking 12 volumes in the full in the full version. Um, in in my library at home, I keep um, an ex expurgated version, one volume, uh, limited use to tell you the truth because invariably when I'm looking for something specific, it isn't there, um, and there's an allusion to it being in the full version. Full version is like, you know, uh, 12 volumes, that's a lot of shelf space. And so uh, I uh, use a library version to consult when I do need it. But anyways, that was a mistake. It's uh, The Golden Bough, very important reference work, I find, uh, not written by, by uh, Richard Burton, but by James Fraser. And um, when it came out, by the way, it was um, uh, it was extremely um, criticized, and uh, it provoked angry response in the United Kingdom, mainly because he included aspects of the story of the birth of Jesus and the emergence of Christianity in his book. And people felt that he was including it in the sort of category of yet another fable, another uh, cultural artifact, you know, instead of uh, as a living religion of more than a billion people. So uh, there was a lot of criticism in that sense. But as far as I can tell, he didn't mean it that way at all. What he was getting at, I think, was a certain uh, subliminal theme. And, and perhaps the best way that, that I can sort of capture that and, and tell you what, um, or, or at least give you a sense of, of what he meant, and it's not, it's not that I have to defend um, James Frazier and the Golden Bow, but it's sort of interesting, I think, in its, in its own sense. Um, there are certain recurring truths that are fundamental to the human soul, that resonate with the human soul. So, for instance, uh, you might remember that, um, that wrestling in general was a sort of moribund sport. Uh, it didn't have a big audience. Um, and I think that it was a showman called Vince McMahon, I think, um, who had this brilliant idea of turning it into an audience extravaganza. And so you might remember in uh, the 1990s, I think it was, the World Wrestling Federation. And there were personalities, uh, one of which the, the, perhaps one of the most flamboyant ones was Hulk Hogan, but there were many, many others. 
But what Vince McMahon did that, uh, that was so brilliant and brought him well-deserved financial success was he tapped into a theme that resonated within the human soul, which is essentially uh, fighting adversity, uh, being beaten down, and then experiencing deliverance. And so that theme happened uh, to reoccur in World Wrestling Federation bouts frequently. Um, it, what would happen is, and, and, oh, and the second aspect of it is that he always made every bout a struggle between good and evil. And so every kid in the country who, who had any interest in WWF events could tell you who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. The bad guys hated America, they waved foreign flags, and above all, they cheated. Oh, did they cheat. When the ref's back was magically turned, when he was being evilly distracted by the bad guy's even worse manager, that was when the bad guy would cheat and, um, and inflict all kinds of inhuman torment on the good guy, the patriotic guy, the guy who didn't cheat. And eventually, you know, he'd beat him down until uh, every heart in the auditorium felt uh, moved to, to, to sadness and, and horror at the punishment that was being inflicted on the, on the good wrestler. And he was, he was down, and he'd be down on the canvas for eight, and the count went to nine. And then all of a sudden, he'd raise an arm, and then little by little, he'd pull himself to his feet just in time, and, uh, and then he would begin to recover, and he would then win the bout in a massive uh, demonstration of pugilistic excellence, and of course it was thrilling, it was good triumphing over evil, and, uh, and every single bout went that route. So uh, what was clever there was that uh, the uh, Vince McMahon, I think I'm right in giving him credit. It's, it's not important. The, the bottom line is that uh, professional wrestling was, no, was nothing until it didn't try and come up with something entirely new. It rode the wave of something that was already a part of the human spirit, namely good versus evil, uh, the, the triumph of good, the battle uh, of adversity, the, the, the willpower to succeed. I mean, all of these themes were a part of every bout and every champion, championship match. Um, and these people uh, who fought were, uh, were heroes for an entire generation of schoolboys. And it wasn't just schoolboys. It was family events. I mean, if you looked at the audience that when the cameras panned, the packed arenas where these bouts used to take place, um, there, was, there was nothing dark about it. It was, it was family entertainment, and, um, and, and you saw families there. It was, um, it, was, it was really quite an experience. And so in the same way, uh, James Frazier was trying to find, you know, what, what were some of the other fundamental human themes that cropped up even in the cultures of remote civilization, I shouldn't call civilized, remote cultures, remote tribes, you know my principle, there really is only one civilization on the planet. There are thousands of cultures, maybe about 5,000, but only one civilization. And uh, the proof of that is very simple, and that is that you don't have a whole lot of people 
from Sweden trying to immigrate to Borneo. You don't have a lot of people from Holland doing their best to migrate to uh, New Guinea. You don't have a whole lot of people struggling to get into Saudi Arabia or Bangladesh. Or you don't get a whole lot of Germans fighting for their right to immigrate to Senegal or Somalia. No, <laughs> it's not. It's very simple. Uh, civilization is what the West created. Uh, does this, you know, do, do I sound uh, elitist? I hope, I hope not. I'm just telling the truth. I'm just telling you what uh, may be unpopular to say. It might be politically incorrect to say, but uh, it's merely the truth. And, uh, and so uh, the, 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 the themes kept on cropping up again and again and again. And, um, and uh, we find exactly the same thing, not only in, in James Frazier's The Golden Bell, which sort of alerted me to this whole idea that it is possible to ride a wave of what I call elemental themes of the human soul. But um, movies do it as well, obviously, and it's easy to identify the, the good versus evil type of movie. And, uh, and, and there was even uh, a general sense, both in the, uh, the theatre-going audience and, and also even um, among the idea makers and thought generators of a culture that it isn't healthy for a society if in the entertainment the bad guy wins. Uh, ideally, the good people should triumph, and that generally tended to be the pattern in entertainment um, all the way through until, as you know, <laughs> as always, um, the 1950s and 1960s. And uh, that was when a, a darker form of entertainment was introduced. But every now and then, uh, something bright broke through, and perhaps uh, none more notably than in 1982 when Steven Spielberg created a movie called E.T. You might remember Drew Barrymore. I, I, I'm not sure if it was her first movie at all, but it certainly was very, very early in her career. She was a little kid, and she played um, the, the, the little girl in the household. And so E.T., the extraterrestrial, um, was was this great Steven Spielberg triumph of 1982. Um, what was the elemental theme of that movie? What really worked for that movie? Um, I'll tell you that in just a moment when we come back. Meanwhile, uh, my website is rabbidaniellappin.com. rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, that's a place where, um, perhaps most importantly, you can and should subscribe to my weekly email called Thought Tool. And uh, you can do that right there on the homepage at rabbidaniellappin.com. Go ahead and uh, subscribe to Thought Tool. By the way, a number of people uh, wrote, funnily enough, just this last week, that um, they hope one day to be able to visit me and, and get a book of mine signed and so on. And, um, and some of you <laughs> will have received responses from me already and, and a personal response where I said, look, there's really an easier way. Just subscribe to Thought Tools and that way you'll know where I am speaking next, where I'm going to be. And, uh, and that way you'll be able to actually just show up when I'm in your town and I'll 
be more than happy. By the way, that happens all the time. I speak in 30 or 40 churches around the country every year, and yes, I, uh, after I'm finished speaking at the, the back of the room or in the lobby, uh, the uh, various audio programs, DVDs, and books of mine are sold, and I sign them. I, I will stand there for an hour if necessary. I'm very, very happy to sign, but frequently people um, arrive with their own books that they've had for, who knows, months that they got elsewhere and uh, want me to sign. No problem. I, I love doing that. So um, please go ahead and check that. Uh, for instance, uh, coming right up from the time you hear this, and uh, we're talking mid-January uh, mid uh, 2016, my next visits are to Chicago. I'll be in Chicago uh, this, this coming weekend speaking uh, in Tinsley Park, just uh, uh, south, sort of southwest of the city, <laughs> between Chicago and Joliet. Uh, so Joliet, isn't it? That's the Blues Brothers, isn't it? Uh, that's where the Blues Brothers movie starts, I think. One of, one of my favorite uh, movies. That's another story. But uh, we're talking not about the Blues Brothers, but about uh, E.T. And uh, I'll tell you, what it is about E.T. that strikes at, the, uh, at another elemental theme that uh, James Frazier also recognized, coming right back. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. And then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, all you happy warriors, and thanks for being back. Uh, second segment of the 28th episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, I promised you I would tell you about uh, Steven Spielberg's 1982 film, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. And, uh, and one of the reasons that I believe that it was so spectacularly successful. Look, uh, Steven Spielberg, very talented. Uh, you know, the movie was, was uh, groundbreaking in many different ways. However, there was an additional feature to it, and that was a certain, if you like, a religious overtone. Another way of saying a religious overtone is saying that the movie resonated at an elemental level with a theme that lies within the human soul. What am I talking about? I will say at the outset that uh, I'm quite sure that if you were to sit down with Steven, Steel, Steven Spielberg, um, who is Jewish, um, his mother 
uh, is somewhat connected religiously. She runs a kosher restaurant in West Los Angeles, one at which I've eaten many times. And uh, But Steven Spielberg himself, uh, while undeniably Jewish and, uh, and involved socially um, and sort of communally and organizationally, uh, is very far from being a religious or Bible-believing Jew. Uh, I would probably, uh, you know, I, I don't know what his beliefs are, but I do know that his practice is certainly not that of a, uh, a God-fearing or believing Jew. Uh, neither here nor there. That's, that's just a fact. And therefore, I'm quite sure that if you were to sit down with him and, uh, and say to him, so I believe you used a biblical theme or a, a religious theme in, in your great movie E.T., I think he would probably deny it vehemently, particularly since uh, the theme is probably more Christian than Jewish. And he'd probably say, absolutely not. And, um, and I, I certainly cannot peer into his mind or into his heart, of course not. But um, I do know that the woman, the, the screenwriter, the person who is primarily responsible for the, the writing of uh, E.T. was the late Melissa Matheson. Uh, she was married to Harrison Ford, and you'll remember Harrison Ford from the great adventure movie uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And all of this comes together, and I'll explain why, because uh, Melissa Matheson was somebody who was acutely sensitive to the spiritual angle, acutely sensitive to what I'm speaking about, the, the sort of uh, religious theme or the elemental mode, mode that or motif that that permeates uh, these kinds of things and is and is something that resonates within the religious heart, and so uh, it's very possible that these things came from Melissa Matheson, uh, or maybe they came from uh, uh, from Steven Spielberg instead, or also in addition subconsciously. I don't know. Uh, and I, I don't think anyone will actually ever know the, the truth of these things. But the fact remains is that it's unarguable. Um, so, for instance, one of the themes of E.T., and if you've, if you've never seen the movie, um, I'm, I, I don't think I'm going to sort of retell the whole story here, because if I did, it would, of necessity, uh, contain spoilers, and so if you haven't seen the movie, I think I'm going to just leave it at that, just in case you might actually want to rent it at some point or watch it on Netflix. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> most Americans, I think, I think most Americans did see that movie. It was extraordinarily successful. But um, at any rate, the, uh, the theme that crops up, and let, me, let me put it this way. If I were to say to you the phrase, a child shall lead them. Wouldn't you say right away that that's a biblical phrase? You've heard it many times, right? And what does it mean? Oh, by the way, also if I was to say to you, and a child shall lead them, would you think New Testament or Old Testament? What do you think? Well, um, as a matter of fact, well, first of all, what does it mean? Well, I think what a lot of people will tell you is that uh, the innocence of a child will lead the adults. In other words, adults are jaded and, uh, and spoiled by the experiences of life. They've become corrupted by evil. 
but a pure, beautiful child can ultimately serve as the leader. And I think many people assume that that expression, and child shall lead them, uh, you know, refers to that sort of concept of, of somebody pure and untainted who will serve as uh, a leader of all people, perhaps even uh, some kind of messianic leader. Funnily enough, however, uh, the phrase is not a New Testament phrase. It's an Old Testament phrase. It's from the 11th chapter of Isaiah. And here's the funny thing. Uh, it doesn't in any way suggest that a child shall lead adults. Not even close. There's not, there's not even a, a, anywhere near to a suggestion that that's what the phrase means. No. It's a phrase that... Um, that, that, that reads, it's early on in the chapter of Isaiah, and I don't remember, I'm, I haven't got it exactly in front of me, but it's something about the wolf shall rest with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, and uh, the calf and the lion will all be together, and a small child will lead them. Not adults, the little child's not going to lead adults. He's going to lead the wolf and the lamb and the leopard and the goat and the calf. And the, in other words, the the uh, the traditional enmities, if you like, if, you know, putting it in 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 anthropomorphic terms, uh, between a wolf and the sheep, and a leopard and a goat and a calf and a lion, well, all of that's going to fade away. And what's more, they're going to be so domesticated and uh, and so uh, calm and tranquil that even a child will be able to lead them. Child will lead the animals, not the anyways. Uh, you get you get the idea, but the the reason that it uh, it is interesting is because there is no question that this popular theme, this popular idea, that adults have become uh, corrupted and made evil, but little innocent little children are the ones who must show us the way. This is not only not a religious idea, not of Judaism and not of Christianity, as far as I know, but uh, if anything, it's actually a, a message of secularism. Uh, the idea that uh, age and experience have no value because they've, they've been awful, and it's an inability to have the maturity to recognize that, um, that yes, it is possible to find uh, an older adult who has wisdom and who has experience and knows things, who's not perfect, who, who has done evil. And that doesn't mean that, uh, that you cannot derive information of value from that person. It just means that you mustn't model yourself on that person in your entirety. But we don't do that anyway, which is one of the reasons that there is no word in the Hebrew Scriptures for a hero. There isn't such a word. A hero being somebody you must mo a role model. These words don't exist at all in biblical Hebrew in any way whatsoever because there is nobody who is so perfect that you should model your life on them. You should be everything you are destined to become. You're not supposed to try and emulate Moses or Samson or Aaron or Noah or Abraham. No, each and every one of these people have lessons for us. Each and every one of them have things we must learn from them, including mistakes they made. You know, um, have, you ever, have you ever wondered why it is that uh, Moses, who had two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, how come we never hear of those people? It's, it's the weirdest thing, is it not? I mean, after all, 
Uh, you know, we know all about Abraham's sons, Isaac and Ishmael. We know all about uh, Jacob's sons. We know all about uh, um, Joseph's sons. I mean, we, we hear about these people. But when it comes to Moses' sons, we don't hear about them at all. And uh, ancient Jewish wisdom records how it is that uh, Moses, Moses was distraught. And he came to God and he said, I, I, I don't get the impression that you're setting my sons up as my heirs. I mean, it's all very nice. You're talking about Joshua this and Joshua that. But, but you know, Abraham uh, was followed by his son Isaac. Isaac was followed by his son Jacob, Jacob was followed by his 12 sons. Uh, there's something very special about bringing your son into your business, as it were. And Moses says, what about my sons? And uh, in one of those poignant and sad moments, God says to him, your sons? Oh, no. No. Uh, look, you're characterized. The, the whole thing, you are dedicated to this people, Moses. Your father-in-law even had to tell you you're not going to survive uh, you're you're making yourself so central. You're at you're at the uh, disposal and available to every single one of the children of Israel. You can't. I mean, you know, you're the guy who couldn't stand to see your brethren enslaved in Egypt. You have deep caring for Israel. Your sons have demonstrated absolutely none of that, none of it whatsoever, and therefore they are not fit to follow you. Um, when you're teaching. And that's what the 40 years in the desert was all about, was Moses teaching the Torah that he'd received from God on Mount Sinai to teach it to uh, Joshua and to the elders and to the leaders and eventually to all of Israel. If you like, uh, the 40 years in the desert was history's longest graduate school program. That's what they were supposed to be doing. They were all supposed to be learning. And, uh, and God says, your own two sons were nowhere to be seen. While you were teaching, Joshua never left your side. Joshua stayed there. Uh, whatever you needed, he was there to provide. He didn't want to miss a word that fell from your lips. Your sons weren't there. No, your sons do not follow you. And sure enough, they don't. But um, what is interesting, of course, is that uh, Moses blames himself. You might remember early in Exodus, uh, Moses even neglected to perform the most basic and fundamental obligation a Jewish man has toward his son, which is to circumcise him on the eighth day. And uh, God nearly executed Moses for his failure to do that. It was Moses' wife, Zipporah, who, who leapt up at the last moment and uh, circumcised her son um, so that Moses could escape the wrath of God. So Moses realized that in his dedication to the Israelites, in his zeal to serve them, as their, as their leader, uh, he neglected his own children. Um, I sometimes laugh when uh, some of my pastor friends talk to me about uh, PKs, pastor kids, and some of them speak quite ruefully about it and, and say, you know, I don't give my children the time and attention I should because I'm, I'm busy helping everybody else. And, and I, I say to them, you know, it's exactly the same. Uh, some of the, the most outstanding rabbis, um, have had children who, who haven't really followed in, in their footsteps and, and followed in, in the way of God. That has happened. And, uh, and people recognize the phenomenon that very often you neglect. And, and by the way, I must tell you something, that um, Susan and I had that sort of life with the congregation that we were privileged to establish 
in Los Angeles, California in the seven, late 70s. And uh, by the time uh, 15 years had gone by and, and we were blessed with seven children, um, it was very clear that we were not devoting, and I certainly, Susan was, but I wasn't devoting enough time to the children at all because I started teaching at 6 a.m. In the, in the morning and then I uh, was busy with congregational matters till about 10 and then I went to my office and took care of my business and then um, I prepared evening Bible class from about 4 o'clock onwards. I taught from 7.30 to 9 and then I was usually available for counseling again pretty much till midnight. And so needless to say, my children really didn't see a whole lot of me and that was one of the reasons that uh, we decided to take a sabbatical, which then morphed into uh, um, a non-congregational lifestyle for us. So uh, it was largely as a result of, of this phenomenon. And so, yes, um, that, was, that was Moses. And, um, and that is the idea that when we say um, a child shall lead them, this is not in any way meant to suggest that somehow children are purer and better. Yes, they may be, but better able to lead and that adults should follow children. This was a Rousseau-like idea, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, the, the French, um, I'm almost not wanting to elevate him even to the title of philosopher. He was a destructive fellow and uh, lived a, a pretty dissolute lifestyle too. But he certainly popularized this notion that somehow Adults who are mature and learned and experienced are not nearly as useful as the noble savage, the person who's had zero civilization, somehow has some innate goodness. And the same idea that little children have this sort of innate quality that turns them into great leaders. Not exactly. I'll tell you a little bit more about uh, E.T. coming right back. Don't go away. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Man hid drugs, guns, and wine cellar cash in washing machine. I gotta say, I thought you were going with rectum, so that's actually a little bit better. If you're laundering money in a washing machine, you're doing, you're you're doing, doing it wrong. wrong. That's not what they mean when they, they say laundering <laughs> They'll it. never check the washing machine. <laughs> hey, look what I found in the washing machine. <laughs> The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you so much for being part of it. I really appreciate that, and uh, I really appreciate those of you who subscribe to my thought tools and uh, those of you who uh, visit my website at rabbidaniellappin.com and communicate with me. Contact us as the tab, and uh, you get to shoot me a message, which I get to read and often to respond to, so much appreciated. Okay, so uh, for a child shall lead them, not a child shall lead an adult. That's not a religious idea at all. Uh, the religious idea that uh, adults should lead children um, Adult, older people should teach younger people. Not younger people teach older people. That's, that's not the notion at all. I remember how shocked I was when I first arrived in the United States of America to discover that, uh, believe it or not, um, children grade teachers. At universities, children grade teachers. What's that all about? 
So uh, the 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 movie uh, E.T. sort of captures this idea, you know, of young people leading the older. In this case, the uh, Elliot's parents are divorced and obviously uh, messing up the kids in in in, in certain ways. I mean, uh, uh, Elliot feels that he, you know he. He, he tells his mom that his dad would have understood him, and his mom gets all upset about it. It's a, it's a big mess. And finally, finally he encounters E.T., this, uh, this, this extraterrestrial, this alien creature, and they created him um, very cleverly as, as a child. I mean, he's, he's, he's got all the characteristics of a child, um, and a lovable child at that. Uh, one of the things that Walt Disney learned uh, when he was creating Mickey Mouse and, um, and exploring this whole world of animation, he discovered something really interesting, which is that um, the good Lord created us to take care of our offspring, and yet Anybody who has had children and raised children knows that uh, they can be pretty frustrating. You've got, uh, you've got an important meeting first thing in the morning, and your baby just won't stop crying. The baby's being fed. The baby's being changed. I mean, for heaven's sake, the baby should be the happiest being on the planet. There's absolutely no reason for that child to have any complaints about life whatsoever. And yet the baby's howling for our... I mean, you know what it's like, right? Uh, you don't even have to have a colicky baby for that to happen. It happens. And, um, and you think to yourself, you know, what a miracle it is that, that kids survive. Which, by the way, uh, the overwhelming majority of abuse to children by so-called parents is um, from uh, mother's boyfriends. And I remember when the New York Times made a deliberate decision that they were no longer going to distinguish boyfriends from husbands. They were no longer going to distinguish boyfriends from biological parents. And uh, all of a sudden, the rate at which um, abuse of children by parents started skyrocketing. Well, it, it isn't that at all. Now, what interest did they have in doing this? What was the idea? Um, you, you know, I hope you don't think that I'm paranoid and everything is, is a conspiracy and everything is an attempt by government to inflict more evil on citizens. However, however, the purpose of that was to justify um, more uh, government intrusion into families. Uh, that was when child protective services in every state began to dramatically increase their budget, their size, their intrusion, and their powers. Nothing had really changed. The fact is that the overwhelming majority, the enormous majority of uh, men and women who are married to one another and who, and who have children together, uh, those children do very well. But the overwhelming majority, it's very, very rare for there to be a case there of, uh, of, of um, abuse of children. The overwhelming majority of cases of children being beaten or sexually molested are mother's boyfriends every single time. That's, that's the reality. 
And so the New York Times changed that, in, that information to no longer distinguish. They absolutely dissolved all distinctions between whole, intact, organic families and other kinds of living arrangements. And they began referring to a mother with a boyfriend and a kid as a family, even if it wasn't the child of the boyfriend. Well, as you can imagine, uh, family childhood abuse began to climb. And uh, in reality, nothing much changed in America, but the way it was measured and reported began to dramatically uh, uh, modify itself, or was modified. So how is it that, um, <laughs> that kids do survive? I mean, yes, there's parental love for your own offspring and everything, uh, but there's something else as well, and that is that the characteristics of little children are really interesting. A little, you know, really newborn young children for the first year, and even a bit beyond, their heads are out of proportion. Their heads are big compared to their bodies. And I'm sure there are all kinds of good biological reasons for that, but there's an additional reason for it, and that is that we human beings perceive round, big round heads as friendly. We, we see them as warm. They make us feel good and protective and cuddly. Sharp, pointy, small heads are quite different. And so um, if you think of animals like a teddy bear, right? Big round head, by the way, with big round eyes. That always works well. But uh, if you think of a rodent, not, no, not Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse, but an ordinary rodent, um, small head compared to the body and very pointy, pointy ears, pointy nose. Um, a, a cocker spaniel, round head, big round eyes, friendly looking dog. A, an Alsatian, a German shepherd, different, different look altogether. And so we... We, we sort of automatically are, are hardwired to feel warm and cuddly and protective towards little kids. Big heads, round eyes, heads big in proportion to body. And so Walt Disney, in his brilliance, realized that uh, Mickey Mouse was not to resemble an ordinary rodent in terms of small head, pointy snout, sharp pointy ears. No! He gave Mickey Mouse a big round head. How about Mickey Mouse ears? Have you ever noticed? They look nothing like a mouse's ears. They're big round, part of the same thing. No pointy snout, and all of a sudden we like the look of Mickey Mouse. And by the way, there are pictures that you can actually find that show the drawings evolving Mickey Mouse to the point where he becomes the lovable cartoon character we're all, we're all so fond of today. And so uh, uh, how did, what did the makers of E.T. do? Well, they took, um, they took E.T. and they gave him the, the, the shape of a little kid, essentially. His, you know, head, big, noticeable head, all round, nothing pointy, uh, round eyes, big eyes, and also not able to speak clearly. He had to be taught to speak uh, so that Elliot and his sister could communicate with him. In other words, very baby-like. And, um, and, of course, there we've got him. He's the, the child He's the child that leads them, and it's also Elliot and his sister. It's the, the little children are leading the adults. And that theme, wrongly imputed to religion, by the way, incorrectly attributed to religion, but nonetheless very popularly and widely misunderstood, uh, that found its way. Was it Melissa Matheson 
Was it, uh, was it Steven Spielberg? I don't know. Uh, but it was somebody consciously saying, the adults are going to be the, 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 the bad people. The people who really get this are going to be the children. And who are the other bad people? Well, there are these, these unidentified, sinister-looking um, men who are, uh, who, who are out searching for E.T. And then afterwards, you may remember, they show up in, uh, they look like hazmat uniforms, but for all the world, they're, they sort of, they, they bring to mind Roman centurions in the whole Jesus story. Uh, they, that's what it's like. And in fact, when E.T. is on the operating table in the emergency room, you'll sort of see his big red beating heart, which, which again has religious overtones. And where does E.T. want to go? He wants to go up to heaven. He, he wants to go home. I'm sure you can see, I could carry on uh, along these lines uh, for quite a while, but I'm sure I've done enough of it um, to, to try and illustrate um, how it is that, and I'm not saying this is the only reason for the popularity of the film, right? There's a lot of factors, and, and the film was very well done. There's no question about it. But um, the fact that it resonated with, with a theme in, in the heart of human beings, well, that was no accident, and that didn't hurt the success of the movie one little bit. And so uh, uh, that's the, the background to uh, Sir James Frazier's The Golden Bough and the, and the very negative reception it originally got, because uh, in those days, prior to World War I, uh, England was a profoundly religious society. It was very biblically um, uh, literate, the overwhelming majority of kids in England went to Bible school uh, on Sundays. They went to Sunday school. Um, and if you look at the literature of that period, you'll see many biblical allusions that today uh, professors in university English departments wouldn't get because they know nothing about the Bible. Um, for instance, in, uh, in books by P.G. Wodehouse, he refers to uh, the Assyrian that came down on the lamb, like a wolf on the lamb. Uh, and there's a poetic allusion there as well, but it's also uh, a very clear biblical one. The Assyrians and the people of Israel, we, I mean, everyone who has any kind of biblical background is familiar with that. So uh, that's how it used to be back then, and uh, obviously that has all changed. So that was one of the mistakes last week. The, the other one was that... Um, I said that the uh, hats began to um, stop being worn by men around about the middle of the 20th century, and again, uh, around about 1960. And I said something which is a popular misconception, and I was wrong. I said that Kennedy did not wear a hat to his inauguration. I said he was the first president to come hatless to his inauguration. Um, while it is true, I'm trying to sort of salvage a shred of my dignity here, uh, while it is true that he delivered his inaugural speech without a hat on, uh, he went to his inauguration wearing a nice, very elegant silk top hat. And, uh, and so that was incorrect. I also am not sure that that was, is necessarily what caused the decline of hat wearing. Again, I don't think there's any one particular event, but uh, part of, of the general mood in, it was moving in that direction. And that again, 
things that distinguish mature adults from children began to go away. So, you know, little kids wore jeans, adults wore suits and ties. That began to go away. Uh, little kids wore baseball caps, adults wore fedoras or homburgs or top hats. And, uh, and I remember seeing a photograph. As a matter of fact, I had it on the wall in my office, my business office in Los Angeles for a while. And, um, and um, it, it belonged to the landlord. So I don't actually know what, uh, what became of it. But it was, it was very intriguing. It showed uh, workers laying um, tar down on early streets in Los Angeles. So it's got to have been the early 1900s, very early 1900s. And um, I would love to see this picture again. If any of you um, know where it is or, or have a, a link to it, do email me. Uh, and needless to say, you do that by going to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and hitting the Contact Us tab. Um, the, the picture showed workers putting – they used to call it macadam, right? Macadamize the – that means – putting down uh, asphalt, blacktopping the roads. And you can see the sort of dusty road on a hot Southern California day. And on a fence nearby, you'll see all the workers' jackets and hats and ties hanging up on the fence. In other words, the workers came to work to lay tarmac on the road dressed like adults, suits and ties and hats, they took them off for their job, and then before going home in the evening, they put their clothing on again. Okay, now, I know this sounds almost quaint and old-fashioned, but the point I'm trying to make is that there's something very authentic about that as well. Adults dress like adults, and that's really how it worked. That's what it meant. And so um, that, as time went by, all faded away, and everybody started wearing jeans and baseball caps, and so the distinction between children and adults faded away. It began to dissolve, and that was one of the uh, defining characteristics of the middle of the 20th century that was both a symptom and a cause of the general decay that was gnawing away at the core of the culture. Quick break, and uh, I will be right back with you as we move forward with one other point that uh, somebody wrote to me that I want to share with you. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. I'm trying to promote a society. I'm trying to promote an America, a culture where we all see each other as individuals, as children of God, as having the same rights and being of, of equal worth and dignity as human beings. And I know that sounds kind of, you know, like I'm giving my own version of a presidential speech or something. And I'm being serious with you. I and mean, that's that, that's really the heart of conservatives. And that's what we're supposed to be doing all the time. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio We're Network. Back. I'm moving right along. This is the fourth segment of this episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. This is episode number 28, by the way, which is terrific. I mean, my goodness, I'm, I'm so excited about that. We've got 28 episodes in the can. That's, um, that is good. And um, 
and um, and I wouldn't have done it. Never would have done this. Never would have sat and recorded these if it weren't for the fact that I was getting feedback from you all. So much appreciated. Um, okay, so uh, somebody wrote. Uh, her name is Sue, and she wrote um, saying, "And gosh, you know, wouldn't shall I actually?" take a second and find this email. I could really do it fairly quickly, I've got to tell you. It w it's not as if I'm going to have to sort of babble for a long time while I'm, while I'm uh, um, searching. I have to babble just a little bit, but not a long time. Okay, here it is. Good evening, Rabbi Lappin. She, was, she, wrote, it, um, she wrote this on Wednesday evening, January the 6th. She writes, um, good evening, Rabbi Lappin. I began listening to your Blaze podcasts on Stitcher about a week ago, and I must say I really enjoy listening to you. Well, thank you, Sue. Uh, you've asked for feedback regarding the length of your show. I listen while I'm working, so two hours is just fine for me, hoping it's not taking up too much of your precious time. A uh, quick editorial comment from me here. Um, normally... Uh, when you're doing something you really enjoy, time flies, right? And, um, you know, 90 minutes can feel like 10 minutes. But if you're doing something that really drags, 90 minutes can feel like two hours. So I laughed when Sue said that because for the last few months, uh, these podcasts have been 90 minutes, an hour and a half long. Uh, on your recommendation, the majority of you, on your recommendation, I shortened it from the two hours. So um, Sue writes, I listen while I'm working, so two hours is just fine for me. Um, so I'm sorry it feels like two hours. It's only an hour and a half. But no, she didn't mean it that way. Uh, and now here's the really important sentence. She says, I will admit that I sometimes disagree with your point of view, but I try to listen to the big picture rather than the small details. Thanks for being my rabbi and be well. And that's Sue, and I'm not going to mention her last name. So, uh, you know, why do I mention this letter particularly? Because, my friends, uh, it takes bigness of spirit to be able to listen to something with which you disagree. Most of us like being massaged with warm butter all the time. And uh, the overwhelming majority of people on this planet, certainly in this country, uh, do not listen to things that contradict their worldview. The cognitive dissonance is too painful. And so people, whether it's the entertainment they choose or the political views they seek out or uh, the child-rearing ideas they listen to or the marriage um, advice they, they pay any attention to, always is selected to conform with what they already believe. It takes considerable intellectual maturity and uh, openness to be able to say, I'm listening to this, I don't agree with everything, but overall I think there is some benefit here. Not everybody can do that. And uh, the last thing I'd want to know is that the only people who listen to me are people who agree with everything I have to say. That would be terrible. Uh, because then it would really be absolutely nothing but uh, me massaging. And so, um, and so the fact that it's challenging to some people at different levels and certain aspects of it is positive. And when I say something with which you disagree, 
there are several possible alternatives. One is I might be making a mistake. I might be saying something that isn't correct inadvertently, not deliberately. And uh, if that is the case, in all probability, next week or the week after, I would correct it and, and say, hey, you know something? Here's something I told you a week ago or two weeks ago. Uh, I don't think that's correct. I think I made a mistake. Alternatively, I might be correct, and it's just too radical for you. It's just too disturbing. And... Um, and the third possible, well, let, let's just leave it at that for the moment. And so uh, uh, I, w I was delighted to hear from Sue that, that there are aspects of, of things I discuss or certain points I make that she doesn't agree with. Terrific. Um, struggle with that. Um, you know, probe it. Determine whether uh, it's true or, or perhaps not true. Figure it out and, uh, and grapple with it. And through that, we grow, right? Uh, living in a gravity-free environment makes your muscles and your your muscles atrophy and your bones decalcify. And um, every time astronauts who spent any period of time in space come back to Earth, they really need a, a re-strengthening um, regimen because, in the absence of gravity, their uh, their, their bodies really to become weak. We become stronger through adversity, and obviously. Um, in a sense, I might be your gravity. I might be pulling you, and you've got to stretch and uh, and and uh, and exert yourself uh, to to be able to 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 deal with it. That's all a very positive and and good thing. So, the fact that you don't necessarily agree with everything I say, I'm delighted to hear that, and uh, and I think very very highly of you for being able to continue listening to the podcast. Um, even though you're probably pretty sure that somewhere during the podcast you're going to hear something that, that makes you want to step into fast-moving traffic. And so a good thing not to step into fast-moving traffic, obviously, but uh, to, to be able to uh, go with the bigger picture and say, okay, in, in general this is going in the right direction, but I, I sure didn't like that little step along the way. Okay, fine, um, that, that's okay. That's a good thing, and um, you know, you, you think about it, you uh, struggle with it, you, you might reject it. That's all right. We don't have to be in, in full 100% uh, agreement on everything all the time. Not at all. Um, and, and as I say, I value uh, letters that are written where people say, look, you know, uh, you know, I don't think you explained that the best way, or I don't think that point was correct, or... Uh, you know, you you might be uh, out of date or out of touch with something. This is all this is all interesting, and uh, it's it's either uh, correct or it isn't. But the interaction is always positive. Okay, so uh, so that's as far as that is concerned. Now, um, you you know the pressure that the culture has been under to uh, move women into the military. Um, I think it's a bad idea, and uh, certainly in, in combat, I think it's a very bad idea. And I'm not going to um, devote the time right now to why I think that's a bad idea, um, because it's not the main topic I'm discussing. And in any event, um, I'm quite sure that you listening either think that moving women into full equality combat positions, nuclear submarines, all of these things are wonderful idea, and um, and that 
in, in which case I'm extremely unlikely to dissuade you in the few minutes we have together, uh, and I certainly don't intend to. Uh, alternatively, you are as horrified as I am by uh, political considerations being placed way ahead of operational effectiveness when it comes to the military. And so uh, uh, I'm not going to spend time on that. I'm just going to say you've noticed the societal pressure. You know that by now uh, senior ranks know that their careers depend absolutely on kowtowing to the feminist lobby. And uh, you're just you're not going to find now you have to talk to people in the ranks who sh you know roll their eyes and say uh, this isn't the same military and how can it be you know how can it be the fact is that every decent western man has been conditioned from youth to protect girls to protect women uh, for heaven's sake i mean uh, it's 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 almost from birth we know that um, you know we all know the extent to which men uh, bristle in fury at the notion of a, a man beating up a woman. And, I mean, men interfere in brawls on the street. They're not involved in it. Men see uh, another man beating up a woman. Men who strangers interfere, and very often, by the way, come off the worst with it because sometimes it turns out to be a couple and, and the woman doesn't want to press charges against the guy who was beating her up and the outsider get I mean, it's, it's, it's a big mess, but it... It, it's all part of uh, our hard wiring to protect women. And um, that's one thing. The, the other thing is that a, a situation of um, two men and a woman is intrinsically unstable. I've spoken about this in the past. Uh, it's intrinsically unstable, but then you would only understand that if you already know that uh, platonic relationships between men and women do not exist. Some of the recent research on this is quite interesting, by the way. And, uh, and what, it, what it reveals is that women are more inclined to think it does exist than men. In other words, um, women say, yeah, yeah, sure, you know, I'm friendly with him. And, and no, there's, there's no sexual or romantic interest. No, we're just friends. Um, and researchers discover that with the man, it's absolutely not true at all with a man. Uh, there is considerable sexual and romantic interest, and he's very much hoping that the relationship will move from friend to lover, uh, which it seldom does. But that doesn't mean that that's not how he's thinking about it. And so um, the, the notion that two men and a woman, whether even if it's in a business position in a situation, by the way, don't for one instant underestimate the sexual dimension even though it's, it's, they're supposed to be three lawyers or three accountants working on a merger or an acquisition, a major financial transaction, and they're working late at night, and it's two men and a woman, and uh, they are all, um, shall we say, of, of reproductive age, don't for one moment fool yourself into thinking that there is no element there of sexual competition between the men. Now, you know, they're not going to start beating their chests and bellowing and, uh, I mean, you know, obviously not. However, the, the idea that nothing is happening, simply not true. Uh, there always is. And so, obviously, uh, in a, a military unit, particularly a small military unit, where, you know, for argument's sake, there, there might be ten people, uh, two of whom are women, 
don't for a moment dream that the sexual tensions there do not diminish the effectiveness of that unit. Um, the, the other aspect of it, and, and I'm not doing what I said I wouldn't do, to sort of go into the reasons for it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going into anywhere near the sum total of the reasons. But, uh, you know, the, the brotherhood experience in the military is uh, found almost nowhere else. Right? Would you agree with that? That the, the connection between men who have shared combat is a connection unlike almost any other connection between men. I mean, it literally begins to resemble the relationship that really good brothers have. And that's why, you know, they speak of brotherhoods of men in the military. Again, uh, when you introduce women, it changes that, and not for the better. Anyways, the point I'm making is that um, uh, in all of these situations, women have been introduced. And, uh, and look, I, I understand women want equality and women want to do the same thing. I, I get all that. But um, how come you don't find women equality in the National Football League or the NBA? Why not there either? Now, I know it's an absurd question, but my question is why is it that gender equality is taken for granted in your local fire department, so much so that uh, you there on the third floor of the hotel and the hotel's on fire, and uh, you happen to be a, a little of a big fellow, you know, you're 240 pounds, and uh, the gal who comes traipsing up the ladder to rescue you weighs all of 110 pounds. Uh, yes, that can happen, absolutely. And it's tough luck if you don't like it, because the... Uh, the feminist lobby has, has successfully pushed for this to the point where it's, it's, un, it's unquestionable. You all know how uh, physical standards are modified to make it possible for women to pass in spite of the fact that anybody other than a recent immigrant from outer space knows that women are not as strong as men physically. And yes, are there, you know, is there a Venus Williams for every Michael J. Fox? Yes, of course. We've spoken about that, but, uh, but in general, this is absolutely the case. So fire in, in, in your police department, oh, yeah, women are everywhere. And, and guess whenever a, a gun is wrestled away from a guard uh, on the way to the courtroom, as happened in Atlanta a few years ago, um, it's always a large male convict and a much smaller female guard. Surprise, surprise. Uh, but none of these facts change the dogmatic determination to never abandon this particular doctrine of men and women are exactly equal. So fire departments, police departments, military, oh, yeah, men and women are exactly the same. Women can do the same thing as men can, even in combat. makes absolutely no difference. But um, oddly enough, men and women don't play in the same football games. They don't play in the same soccer games. They don't even play tennis against each other. There's men and women's, right, you've got mixed doubles, that's a different story. But uh, in sports, everybody recognizes this. How do you explain this? I'm sure you're thinking about the answer, and you probably have it. Let's confirm in just a moment when we get back together again. I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back in a moment. Thank <laughs> you.
This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. Hey, last night we all returned to that day when someone read us a fairy tale bedtime story. It had monsters, conservatives, a utopian kingdom, socialism, a princess, Hillary, <laughs> and a conquering hero, Obama. Problem is, he couldn't promise a happy ending because the ugly princess is maybe going to lose. She could turn out to be the frog. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Welcome back. Your Rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. That's right. And uh, one of the ways the world really works, obviously, is that uh, we recognize that uh, men and women are not interchangeable, (laughs) obviously. And so uh, uh, why is it that in the military, in police departments, fire departments, oh, they're exactly the same, but in sports, they're not? Why is that? Well, partially it's because um, sports are not run by the government. And so uh, the religious credo of the government has become the religion of secular fundamentalism. And part of the religion of secular fundamentalism is to abrogate and, uh, and uh, eliminate any lingering vestige of biblical culture within the hearts and minds of citizens of the United States. And one of the, the very foundational expressions early on in the book of Genesis is male and female, he created them. That's right. You don't need me to repeat that, do you? Male and female, he created them. He didn't create them male and female and lesbian and homosexual and transgender and about to be transgendered and already transgendered but not medically adjusted. No, Male and female, he created them. And uh, I, I think that that is a large part of the reason why the secular left is so obsessively preoccupied with trying to eliminate that simple truth. And so, whereas government can use force to achieve that because government has the ability to use the force in your local police department or your local fire department, uh, or for that matter, your, uh, your, um, your military, right? It is not quite the same when it comes to the National Football League or the National Basketball Association or any of the other sporting events. Yes, why don't they have men and women playing golf against each other? Because, my friends, in general, women cannot hit the golf ball nearly as far as men can. You know that's the truth, right? And so nobody suggests, well, this is discrimination against women. They've got to be able to play anywhere they choose. Well, it'll be interesting, of course, when so-called transgendered men insist on the right to play in women's golf tournaments. And you know it's coming. (laughs) Oh, what a day. What a day. But um, you can see where all of that is headed. Another area in which um, male and female differences uh, not fully grasped at all, is in fashion. And uh, whilst I don't want you to think that I am drawing conclusions 
from my own uh, limited personal experience. Um, it is funny when things happen that, uh, that validate information that I've, I've known for a while or, or ancient Jewish wisdom that, that has always existed. And so a case in point um, occurred just recently, um, this, this past Sunday, as a matter of fact, um, we, uh, we had house guests, a couple uh, who were longtime members of uh, my synagogue in Los Angeles, California. And uh, they um, were visiting with us for over the weekend and um, staying till Monday. And so it was really quite wonderful. We hadn't seen them for a few months, and it was a great opportunity. We, uh, you know, they, they got married just uh, a year or two after we did, and, and they had children at the s roughly the same time as we did. And, um, and so uh, we, we had much to share. We really enjoyed it. Sunday, we went out for a walk. And um, uh, you and you know how these things happen. You know, tell me it's not the same with you, right? I mean, it's it, this is always the case. Uh, whether it's have you noticed at dinner parties, what happens after after dinner? Invariably, with us, and you know, we we usually do dinner parties on Shabbat, on Friday night, and on Saturday lunchtime. And uh, it's it would be perfectly normal for us. I mean, in fact, it's rare for us not to have uh, I don't know eight, ten, twelve people around the table. Um, and since we got married, Susan has been uh, preparing Shabbat meals of, of that uh, size. And um, we, uh, we have uh, Jewish friends at the table. We have Christian guests joining us for, for Shabbat meal. And uh, we, we love having guests, not because we think that our guests don't have anywhere else to eat, but because their presence adds um, so much uh, to the joy of our table, the, the friendship and the camaraderie and the conversation, uh, it, it's no longer just a meal, but it's an, it's a, it's an extravaganza. Uh, it's, it's an experience shared of human connection and closeness. It's quite wonderful. And, and so uh, what normally happens is that as the meal draws to an end, although we have men and women seated around the table, what generally happens is towards the end of the meal, and it's, it keeps happening, it's so funny, and people I've spoken with uh, report a very similar experience, which is that the the men and women sort of start shifting seats so as that the women congregate at one end of the table and the men congregate at the other. And the conversation is entirely different <laughs> at the two ends of the table. Um, and it's, you know, again, just showing once and for all that the uh, that that we are different from one another, really, really different. And uh, so not surprisingly, our... Uh, our friends and are walking with Susan and with me. And before very long, we're no longer walking as two couples, Susan and me and, uh, and uh, my friend um, David and his wife. No, what's happened is now the two ladies are walking uh, a few yards in front of us, and we, the two men, are walking behind, and we're talking about all kinds of things. And... Um, we at one point, I raised the uh, the point I said to David. Um, oh, I know what it was. He actually said to me something interesting. He said, um, "Have you noticed that asymmetrical clothing is much more common on women than on men?" I said, "Well, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, what are you getting at?" He said, "Well, 
you'll notice that um, you'll, you'll have the arrangement of, of fabric or buttons or pattern or whatever it is very often quite different. And it could be a smart outfit. And yet um, you'll, you'll see uh, an asymmetry. For instance, uh, you could see a woman in an evening gown with one bare shoulder. Right now you do have evening gowns with, with both shoulders bare. But it's quite common to see only one shoulder bare. And so that's not symmetrical. No problem. Doesn't matter at all. Um, much more unusual, right? When have you last seen a tuxedo that is dramatically unsymmetric, asymmetrical? Um, you might have a breast pocket, and you might even have a, uh, a handkerchief sticking out of that pocket, and that would be it. But other than that, um, you know, the, the shirt is symmetrical, the, the, the pants are symmetrical. Um, with, with men, the clothing is sort of largely symmetrical. When asymmetry does occur uh, with men, it's minor. But with women's clothing, it's, it's quite common to have things that, okay, fine. I said, so what does that mean? He said, well, uh, one possibility is that it, um, it implies um, being slightly off balance, as it were, which implies a vulnerability. He said, I think that asymmetrical clothing um, makes a woman look pleasingly accessible in a way, uh, in a way uh, less strong, more subservient, more surrendering, more yielding. Okay, I thought that's that's interesting, um, and I, I I wanted to think about it. It it could be fanciful, but but it's it's an observation and it's worth anal analysis. Um, he then spoke also about uh, torn clothing on women. And, uh, and I knew exactly what he was talking about, where even though, I mean, it, it, it's not that their clothing got torn and they're still wearing it, they buy it that way. And um, he said he felt it was exactly the same concept, that it, it showed um, somehow or another, it, it said, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been through something. And that also sends uh, a subtle sexual message well, uh, not to be outdone, I said, well, I must share with you then um, something that I have noticed, and it, it just began to dawn on me during the last year or so, which is that um, zippers are now very pronounced. Now, this may be, uh, I mean, I may be sufficiently, insufficiently observant, and it could be that this fashion statement has come and gone already, although I don't think so, but... Um, I said, I, uh, I've always thought that you try and conceal zippers. For instance, um, every man has a zipper on his pants, but you don't see it. It's behind a little flap, and it's sort of, in a sense, private. You don't, you don't want to beam out the message that, um, hey, this can be lowered. <laughs> uh, now, when it comes to women's zippers, you never saw them. They were very discreetly tailored. And as a matter of fact, Susan tells me that uh, one of the most difficult things in sixth grade sewing class when she was at school was installing concealed zippers. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that that used to be the case. In other words, um, I mean, so many dresses and skirts had zippers to uh, make it easier to get in and out of them. But you never saw it. It was beautifully tailored into the outfit so that uh, it was literally 
concealed. And today, it's, it's not the case. And as a matter of fact, uh, last week, Susan and I were at a, a very elegant event, and the women were, were really attractively got up. And there were several of the women wearing outfits, not only with zippers down the back, but even zippers down the front. And to my fascination, not only were the zippers visible, but they were magnified. In other words, these were not discreet little, you know, a typical zipper on, on a woman's outfit is small. I mean, it's the, the teeth and the whole structure is probably a half of the third of the size of the zipper on, on my jeans. Uh, they're very sort of delicate zippers. Well, the ones I saw at this event were like <laughs> large, like much, they were the sort of things you'd, you'd, probably want in order to, uh, um, you know, zipper together the, the tracks on a bulldozer or something. These were big zippers, and they were down the fronts of, of some of these evening outfits I saw on the women. I thought, this is really interesting. And then I began to look around, and I then began to look for women's fashions, and to my astonishment, I found this to be very, very common. Um, and what's that all about? What does it mean? Well, um, and I, I raised this with David, and he says, uh, he said, obvious. It's obvious, which is unzip me. And I said, yeah, clearly. I mean, this may be a very slight microscopic exaggeration, but there is surely not a male on the planet who doesn't see an attractive woman with an outfit that has a highly visible zipper who doesn't imagine himself unzipping it, for heaven's sake. I mean, isn't that obvious? And he and I nodded and said, yeah, I mean, this, this is fascinating. And, um, and then we thought, wouldn't it be interesting, we, we raised it with our wives. Why do you think, and, you know, we, we actually were able to even point out some examples, and we said, why do you think they do that? And our wives said, well, this is, it's just a fashion thing. Um, you see, they said to us, using the tone of voice you use when uh, you have to explain complex things to idiots, uh, they said, uh, you see, the fashion industry has to get people to buy new stuff all the time. So they have to come up with new fashions. This is just a new fashion. And uh, David and I smiled at each other knowingly, and, uh, <laughs> and they said, what's the matter? We said, you're absolutely wrong. As a matter of fact, in a way, you're naive. You don't have the faintest idea of what this is all about. And they said, what do you mean? We said, well, the zipper is a message of availability. And that's why this is something that could happen in 2016. But in 1945 or 1950, women would never have worn such a thing, not even on a bathing suit. And I remember when I first started seeing exposed zippers on women's bathing suits. But now it's on women's outfits all around, and not only down the back, but down the front. Well, our wives were dumbfounded. And they said, we cannot believe that that's how men see it. And we said, believe it. And surely, for us, no better proof existed of the difference between men and women. Right? It's, it's as clear as could be. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that, that I, I'm, I'm envisaging you nodding. I'm, I'm imagining you listening, and I'm imagining the men saying, yeah, hello, of course, 
And I'm imagining the woman saying, what? Is that true? And maybe you're even turning to your husbands and you say, Jim, this isn't true of you, is it? I, I'm sure you wouldn't be thinking that. And of course, uh, you are doing exactly what I would do in your position, which is, no, dear, of course not. Um, and she might then say, ah, oh, some men are such dogs. Yes, dear. Back in just a moment, dear. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Patents 2. I will say, you know, as much as we've been pro-Cruz, and I clearly do believe he's the best guy in the field, there's been a lot of guys I've entertained and, and thought this guy could be good. I'd vote for this guy. That field is dwindling right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, Fiorina. There are two for me. There are two. Two it that you would vote Cruz. And it is Marco Rubio. Pat and Stu. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, here we are. And, uh... We're at the final segment, only one more segment in this, the 28th episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. So uh, thanks for being with us uh, up till here and moving right along. Um, I w- wanted to tell you a little bit about why it is that uh, I went ahead and not only did an enormous amount of research on a particular area, namely money, um, but uh, but also why I have, well, I should say one of the very first things I did was create an audio CD called Boost Your Income. And um, even, even now, although it's uh, a number of years down the road, this remains one of the most popular sellers. It's, it's inexpensive, and, uh, and it just it flies off the shelves. Not only does it fly off the shelves, but it also uh, flies electronically because being an audio program, it is uh, very easy to instantly download it. It's called Boost Your Income. And I want to tell you what motivated me with this and how I came to do this. Um, for one thing, it's, it's very clear that the United States has been one of the greatest engines of prosperity the world has ever seen. Um, and it's, it's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, for 200 years and more, people flocked here. Well, if you take a look at the Constitution, uh, if you look at Article 1, Section 8, Clause Number 3 in the United States Constitution, that, by the way, is known as the Commerce Clause, and um, it says that only Congress has the power to manage commerce between the states. And, um, you know, only Congress can establish the dollar and so on and so forth. What's, what's that all about? Well, it's because the founders, rooted as they were in biblical understanding, knew and understood the link between human togetherness and the creation of wealth. And so if they were going to create a United States, it was essential that we all shared one currency. Now, not surprisingly, in post-World War II Europe, as they tried to replicate the idea of the United States in Europe, and remember you heard it from me first, 
the uh, European Union will not live as long as you will. Right? We'll all outlive it. Um, for all intents and purposes, it's already on the way out. But even they understood that they did need a unified currency. However, Britain and other countries did not want to go along with that. And so, to this day, Britain doesn't work on the euro. It works on the pound. Um, because you can only have a unified currency once you've already established a unified culture. And America did have a unified culture. Yes, it was a biblically-based culture. doesn't mean that every single person was a Bible believer. Every person in colonial America was a religious Christian. For the most part, that is true. But uh, even those that weren't subscribed to the culture that grew out of that biblically-based belief system. And so um, they understood very clearly this connection between uh, human communication, human collaboration, human cooperation, human uh, communication, and the creation of wealth. And so as part of a unified United State of America, uh, it was necessary to naturally have a currency that everybody agreed on. And so um, I was intrigued by that, and I thought, let's go back to the source, because obviously uh, Jewish excellence with money is something that has always been recognized, even if not always understood. For instance, if, um, if you took a look at Adolf Hitler's book Mein Kampf, which means my struggle, and he wrote it around about 1924, uh, and the book obviously has many uh, scurrilous lies, but it also has some truths. And uh, that, by the way, is what makes lies dangerous. 100% lies are easy to spot, and they don't have much longevity. But when lies are mixed with truth to create a, uh, a confused uh, jello of lies and truth, uh, it makes the lie much more dangerous. But among the truths, uh, listen to Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf. The best way to know the Jew is to study the road he takes. He comes as a merchant, and with his thousand-year-old mercantile dexterity, he quickly becomes active in finance and economics, which soon become his monopoly. Now, obviously, you can you you know you know that uh, he's he's trying to make a point, which is Jews are terrible people, but uh, he makes it by identifying the fact, knowing that none of his readers are going to disagree with us, that uh, wherever Jews come, they arrive as as immigrants without anything, and then they become merchants, and using their age-old dexterity with money and finance, uh, they become they rise to the top of the heap, and. That uh, was true in Germany. It's been true almost everywhere. As I think you all know, uh, in the United States of America, in spite of the fact that Jews constitute less than 2% of America's population, when Forbes magazine began compiling their list of the 400 richest Americans, naturally I began counting the number of Jews. And uh, it's usually between 60 and 100. 
which means that um, if 2% of the population is Jewish and if wealth and financial ability was distributed randomly through the population, then there should be about eight or nine Jews on the list. Truth is, maybe seven. Truth is, there's usually much closer to 100. Uh, massive overrepresentation. And so, yes, uh, Jews are disproportionately good with money. There's no question about it. And, um, you know, that was, that was Adolf Hitler on it. But, but let's think of a contrast. Uh, Adolf Hitler's nemesis, the man he loathed more than anyone else, Winston Churchill, the great Winston Churchill, in his book, The History of the English-Speaking Peoples, um, has a remarkable section. Listen to this. The Jews had lodged themselves in the social fabric of that fierce age, becoming helpful to high personages in urgent need of money. English land began to pass into the hand of Israel either by sale or more often by mortgage. Not until Oliver Cromwell were the coasts of England again opened to the enterprise of the Jewish race. The passage of several thousand years sees no diminution of their economic vitality. That's Winston Churchill. He wrote that in 1956. Um, here you might be interested in what Mark Twain wrote in 1898. He wrote this for Harper's Magazine, by the way. The Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. By the way, since then, it's considerably less than 1%. The Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of. But he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is a successful businessman. The immense wholesale business of Broadway is substantially in his hands. By the way, uh, editorial note from me, uh, today Broadway is synonymous with theater and entertainment. But in 1898, Broadway was the, uh, was the, the wholesale business. I mean, that's, that's where the market was in, in, on Broadway. And so um, Mark Twain writes, the immense wholesale business of Broadway is substantially in his hands. 85% of the great and lucrative businesses of Germany are in the hands of the Jewish race. The Jew is a money-getter. That was Mark Twain. And um, nothing anti-Semitic about that. It was, it's just an observation. It's true. Um, the uh, husband and wife historian team, Will and Ariel Durant, uh, wrote a wonderful uh, multi-volume story of civilization. It's a, it's a great history. I think it's a great history. But... Um, in Volume 8, I came across this. The Jews included some of the wealthiest merchants in the thriving port. They managed a substantial segment of Dutch trade with the Spanish Peninsula and with the East and West Indies. On one occasion, at the wedding of a Jewish girl, 40 of the guests had fortunes totaling 40 million florins. In 1688, when stadholder Willem III was planning his expedition to capture the crown of England, a Dutch-Jewish financier, Isaac Swasso, we are told, advanced him two million florins without interest. And he said to him, if you are fortunate, you will repay them to me. If not, I am willing to lose them. 
Some of this wealth was made too conspicuous. David Pinto, for instance, adorned his home so gaudily that the civic authorities reprimanded him. We should add, however, that the Pinto family gave millions to Jewish and Christian charities. And that's Will and Ariel Durant. And so exploring what it was that was responsible for Jewish business success. One of the products I arrived at once, once after my research showed that which I knew to be the case anyway, which was this wasn't because Jews circumcise or they eat chicken soup or, uh, or, or for any silly reason. It's no other reason other than the fact that Jews have absorbed a vast toolbox of uh, spiritual tools and techniques and strategies from ancient Jewish wisdom that equipped them better than anyone else for the process of making money, I realized that this is a legacy that belongs to everybody, not just Jews. Everybody of every background should have access to some of this. And one of the, the first and most important products that, that I created for this purpose uh, was called Boost Your Income, Three Spiritual Strategies for Success. And... Uh, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a terrific product. It's, it's something which you or anyone in your circle, friend or family, who is interested in stepping onto the escalator financially, somebody who isn't happy with the way their finances have been going, somebody who wants to increase their earning capacity and their revenue, revenue producing, uh, this is a good thing. It's good for everyone around us. In other words, would you rather live among people who are doing better and better or would you rather live among people who are doing worse and worse? I mean, quite apart from the fact that uh, it's uplifting rather than depressing to be among people who are doing well. It's wonderful. But it also means that there's excess money for uh, sewage and uh, museums and clean water and parks. It's good. It's a positive thing. And so all we can do to help people make more money, the better off we are. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. And, um, and just a quick, easy way to step onto this entire new experience um, is this audio CD program called Boost Your Income. Take a look at, at it. You can even hear a segment of it, and you can read more about it uh, on my website, youneedarabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, you head over to the store and then just page through it. Just find an audio CD program called Boost Your Income. And there's a whole lot more information about it right there, which I think you'll find uh, very interesting. But uh, the product itself is nice because it is a very inexpensive way of stepping onto the escalator. It's like literally uh, a person walking in a dark forest, stumbling over tree roots, not knowing if he's moving closer to the edge of the forest and civilization or if he's walking deeper into the forest. And then uh, all of a sudden the sun rises, the, light, the sky is bright, and all of a sudden he looks around and he can see quite clearly where he is and he can see where the edge of the forest is. It's kind of like that. When you listen to Boost Your Income, Three Spiritual Strategies for Success, it's kind of like the sun rising and brilliant light flooding what had previously been a confused landscape. And so this is really a good thing for everybody, either for you or, or for somebody in your family who really needs to 
rethink, or I should say not only needs, but wants. You know, you can't, you can't force a person to, to do something they don't want to do. But for people who are not happy with the way things are going financially and who deep down suspect that they could and should do better, this is a great place to begin. And as a matter of fact, um, you can even download it right away. And you know what the really good thing is? I deliberately did not put on any sort of protections and limits and, um, and uh, locks. In other words, um, if, if you get it and you listen to it and you realize that this is everything I'm saying it is and you want to have uh, your, your son listen to it, your daughter listen to it, your brother listen to it, um, just shoot it to them in an email <laughs> as a simple MP3 attachment. I really don't mind. I don't mind at all because uh, I do believe this makes the world a better place. The more people who are making more money in an honest, transparent, productive way, the better everybody is, uh, the better off everybody is. And uh, to whatever extent I can play a very small role in that with your help, I'm delighted and we should all go for it. So, uh, my friends, that's about as, uh, yeah, that is as far as we can go for today. And, um, and that means that it's another week till we get to the next episode. But for now, uh, please do me a favor and spread the word. If you think you know folks who might enjoy the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, please tell them about it. And, uh, and let's get the numbers up even higher than they are. And they really are looking quite wonderful. I'm feeling so gratified. So uh, share the good news. If you think it's good news, if you don't, then obviously you shouldn't. But uh, I hope you do. And until next week, I, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wish you a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.